So Luke, can you tell us a bit more, when did you start studying piano? Um, well, I, I was first introduced to piano when I was in elementary school. Um, I didn't start taking lessons until I was around 12 years old or so. So it was several years after I had been playing sort of for fun at school and I, would, I was put into some student recitals and things like that because I picked up the instrument quickly. But the formal training began just pre-teen-ish and, uh, and I kind of took it over, took over playing from there. Um, at first it was a bit of a struggle because I loved to play but I hated to practice. Um, which I'm sure a lot of people can attest to. But oh, say we all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it's funny. I was I was telling this story the other day to to someone else where, um, you know, my, te- my the first teacher I had always would say, okay, well, he plays well, but he could be so much further if he would practice. And my parents would go off to work and I'd go off to school and I'd get home. Or sometimes even in the summer, they'd come home from work and they'd say, Luke, did you practice? And depending on how convincing my yes was, they either sent me back to the piano or I, you know, I got to go out and play with my friends and stuff like that. So, but at one point, then I just sort of took off and loved to to play on my own all the time. What age did that take off for you? When you were like, I want to practice on my own. I won't need to be told anymore. This is what I want to do. I was probably around fifteen or sixteen. I remember because, like I said, by when I would come home and my mom or my dad, but especially my mom, when she would ask me, "Did you practice?" and I would say no, she would send me back for an hour. And out of pure spite, and I'm and I'm very careful telling the story because I don't want youngsters out there to have the wrong impression. But um, <laughs> out of spite, I would sit down and pick one note on the piano, and for an hour, I would just push that note on the keyboard just to be like, "Oh, you don't believe me? So I'll give you an hour of A, you know, I'll give you an hour of C." And then at one point, I realized, well, the only person who's suffering is me, and I'm wasting all this time sitting at the instrument. So I actually did start practicing, and then you couldn't get me to stop. I was practicing morning, noon, and evening, and that was around yeah, 16, and I was starting to think about my future with university and things like that, and um, yeah, I, it just really took off from there. And where did you study? Well, originally I studied, my high school was uh, Mayfield Secondary School, so that's one of the three arts high schools in Ontario, or at least in Southern Ontario, so I went there, and then from there I went to Western University, um, so I studied there, I did a bachelor and a master, but as I was doing the bachelor and entering the master, I was starting to develop some arm troubles, so, um, and I tried to play through it, so I actually blew my arms out when I was in the middle of my master, so I came out with tendinitis and carpal tunnel syndrome and pinched nerves, so I had to stop playing for about three years. So that's when I ended up moving to the Netherlands and did another study, or like a second master, but that one for me was more of a way to kind of try to build my career back up again, so, um. Yeah, so those are, I studied the Erotic Conservatory, the um, Western University, and then and Mayfield's Boarding Backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better now. Did it take just some physio and rest to make the arm better? Um, well, it was a series of doctors and hospitals and specialists who were all saying, take these meds, and then it would be all side effects, and then the next doctor would say, take those meds, and it was all side and take meds for the meds. And at one point I said, I just need to let myself heal naturally. So I went to one doctor who mentioned, and I had said to her, um, by this point I was working at the bank, and I had said to her, well, I could sneak, I would still sneak back into Western and, and practice on the pianos for five minutes, and then I would need to stop. And she would say, okay, that's, that's interesting, because if you can play for five minutes, play those five minutes. Instead of resting, play until your body tells you to stop. So I actually played myself back into uh, getting my career going again instead of taking complete rest and hoping that it was all going to work out. So it just built up, like the endurance and time just built up a little bit by little bit. I had to sort of restart, but like I had to change my technique and the bench height and a bunch of different things that all sort of worked together to 
Uh, and a lot of confidence and, and good teachers to, <laughs> to, to believe in me when I was even doubting myself. That's right. Um, this is something that a lot of students start to come up against at 13, 14. They're starting to play bigger pieces, bigger stretches. Would you have any, and we're, of course, we're focused on education in our music society. Um, what tips would you have for youngsters about injury prevention? The number one thing I think for me was to not be distracted by what everyone else is doing. Because I remember when I was, when I was at Western and, you know, I thought I was okay of a player, but then I looked left and right and my friends were playing this repertoire and that, and I'm saying, oh, I'm, I'm practicing three hours and they're playing, oh, four or five, six. And you always want to sort of keep up with them or outdo them. And then that's when you start spinning yourself into a cycle and chasing your own tail. So the best advice I can give is stick to your own game plan, focus on what you can control and don't really, everything will settle itself down. Don't try to chase some sort of artificial goal. Just be the best artist that you can be in and of yourself. Preach. Preach. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I had to learn that the hard way, but that's it. <laughs> and I just can't emphasize that enough for any youngsters that are listening or will tune in or that have a chance to have a masterclass with Luke at some point. Um, I hope you share this in masterclasses, Luke, because um, everybody gets caught up in first and second year with who has the biggest program. That's right. That's right. Um, and by the time people get to their DMA recital, I've noticed that it's it's not this flashy stuff. It's a really introspective look at the last eight years of playing. Or it's not that it's not technically demanding at the DMA level, but it's just it they've they've usually come to come to peace with themselves. Um and I noticed that a lot of players between 14 and 21 are programming these insane things, uh, partly made um, expectation by conservatories, music schools, competitions, RCM, if you're listening. <laughs> and, 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 that's, <laughs> and that's the thing where like you, you get compared a lot to other people. So then you, you tend to start finding that for yourself or you find that certain people um, have certain privileges offered to them because they're playing the big repertoire and you wonder, hey, why can't that be me? So then you start competing with them in that way. Or even sometimes it's something as simple as this person is playing this insanely difficult piece. I want to be able to prove that I can do it too. Even if I'm going to damage my body trying to get there, I'm going to... And it's so backwards. It's so backwards because it takes away all, it undoes all the years of work that you've done into your instrument. It just undoes it like in a snap. Um, that'll be interesting to hear on the podcast, a snap. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. And it's, um, and it's interesting also that like you realize that at one point people, audiences don't really worry so much about who's playing the most typical stuff. They just want to hear you and see you and just get, and you listen to good music and just enjoy themselves. So you don't really need to worry about these sort of extra pressures as much as you think that you need to, you know? And again, like I hope the young people heard that because... Um, that is what audiences look for. And that's the feedback that we always get. I mean, we've had some wonderful technicians who have performed for us and it wasn't devoid of artistry or anything. Um, they had technical facility and beautiful artistry and great program chosen. Um, but the comments that the audience writes to us in an email after the concert have nothing to do with, wow, their scales were fast. Yes. Never, right. never once. 
<laughs> but they have everything to do with that person connected with me. So that's very, that's very cool. Um, I want to talk about the article you wrote. Um, I'm a grade five teacher and the makeup of my class is probably 85% Taiwanese, Chinese, and from Hong Kong, and maybe 5% Korean and 10% all other groups of people. <laughs> Very urban school, um, you know, and I'm even trying to find words other than urban um, and diverse because those, those are loaded words now. I'm learning about this as an educator. But one thing that's been brought to our attention as educators, especially as a white female educator, um, am I choosing books and materials that look like the students in my class? Hmm. Okay. Do students see themselves in my class. And so what really struck out to me in your article, what stuck out the most was you did not see anyone that looked like you physically. They might have thought like you, they might have enjoyed music like you and shared a musical soul, but you did not physically see someone um, that looked like you in this industry. And like, when did you notice that? Was that very young? Like, did you have a consciousness of this when you were young? No, and, and that's also what I wrote in the article. I didn't notice it until, as I was telling you, like when I sort of made my comeback in, in Rotterdam and was getting myself a track and I was playing more concerts and people would say to me, wow, I don't see people like you on stage very often. And then suddenly it dawned on me, you know what? Yeah, I don't see other people like me on stage like that either. And then I started thinking back, even when I was studying, I didn't have my other Black piano friend. They were all classical friends and they're all great friends of mine. And we still remain great friends to this day, but none of them look like me. And then I started to realize it wasn't even Black males. It was even black females or, or anyone even remotely close just were not part of these programs. And that includes all of the master classes I would go off to in the summer. And these are competitions. These are everywhere. So it's not even to say just at my school, it was a sort of industry-wide thing that I noticed. So I became cognizant of it a little bit later than, than probably I should have been. Well, and we see now um, some artists who are just fantastic examples. And I mean, this is by no means an exhaustive list, but... Anthony and Damar McGill um, and Janine DeBeek, who I think has the most heavenly voice out there. <laughs> if you're listening. And of course, our own Canadian Misha Berger-Gossman. Fantastic. Uh, fantastic singer and musician. Um, and it's not that those people are not in the community. It's just, it, they're really, it is, it's just not represented. Um, what challenges did that mean that you had to face? Um, for me, most of it, well, there were several challenges that I could think of because um, I even wrote in the article where there were times when I would be showing up for my own concert and people were reluctant to even let me into the building to play until I had to actually, you know, bring them to the front of the building and show them, hey, that's my face on the poster, um, which is sort of sad in and of itself, but, um, there were other times, another time I can remember I was saying to someone recently where our school in Rotterdam or the conservatory had um, a different theme program as their big concert every year. So one year it was a Chopin year and then all of the piano students could learn Chopin and go and play in the big concert hall. Or And the year I'm talking about was a Scriabin year. So I said, oh, I'm going to sit out Scriabin this year, but I'm going to go and support my friends and my classmates. So I go to the venue and it's, 
intermission, I, and I'm heading off to the washroom, and one guy pulls me aside, and he's saying, oh, so do you like this kind of music? Do you understand it? And, and he was trying to sort of break it down for me, and, you know, and I'm like, I have two masters in music. These are my classmates. I should be explaining to you what's going on, but just because he had seen me, and I don't look like anyone else in the audience, that he felt it necessary to, I don't, he probably thought he was trying to help, but in and of itself, you can tell that that's sort of, you know, hints of condescension to it. So, and, and I'm just struck by how gracious you are in telling these stories. Um, and I just see that as a very, like, that's a strong quality towards reconciling some of this racial inequity and racial injustice. Um, but I, I've been reading and learning a lot, hopefully. And I, I want to acknowledge that I'm hosting this podcast as a, you know, cis, straight, white woman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like on the pyramid privilege, it's up there. And I, I'm very aware of that. And it's like the emotional labor that you have to do to show somebody, dude, I'm the one on the poster for tonight's concert. That's right. And, and the difficulty in those situations is to not overreact because then you put yourself behind another eight ball that you're not meant to be behind too, you know? So you got to find a way. Of, and this is, I think why I'm, I'm relatively confident and calm talking about it is because like the second that you huff and puff, then you're falling right into these stereotypes and into certain traps that people are expecting you to fall into. So you got to stay sort of pick your battles and stay on top of that, you know, and think about the people coming in behind you. And I think, I think this is a battle that has been brought to our attention and, you know, a lot of us studied what happened in the civil rights movement and we're inspired by MLK, we're inspired by Malcolm X, by the recently late Senator John Lewis. Um, right. And if people have not read his op-ed in the New York Times penned 20 hours before he died, y'all need to go read it because it was just a stunning like, call to justice. And it was so lovingly penned, I couldn't even believe it. Um, and I think this is a battle that, like, we need to help people to fight because we have a lot of cultural capital. You know, people with privilege have cultural capital and need to be able to, to offer that and also to do our own learning. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to, to, to have you share your story. And by the way, we really appreciate that. You know, that it's not easy, it's not easy to dig things up, but like we should be educating ourselves. Yeah, but but that says something in and of itself. The fact that you're open-minded to these things that are going on out there and that you realize that they're there and you realize that you do have capital and that you can help people in situations like mine to have their voices heard or to open up doors and opportunities for them, that in and of itself is, I think, I, I mean, I don't want to put words in everyone's mouth, but that's all we ask for. That's all we ask for. That's 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 the name of the game, you know? And the difficulty is even just reaching first base, like in this case, you know what I mean? So I appreciate you and, and those sentiments as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've, got a, we've got a long way to go because our programming is still, you know, um, it's hard to know whether to have, like, insist on programming certain things or insist on programming certain composers 
Um, do we do we dare do that because there's a reaction to being told you have a quota of things? It's it's very complex to navigate. Do you have plans to program uh, composers that are marginalized? Yes, that was actually something, especially during this COVID time, that I was that I'm thinking about doing. Um, I'm challenging myself to maybe do make another recording soon, but I would love to pick music from marginalized composers, performers, um, people who were significant in their day, and somehow those chapters have been glued together. They need to be resurfaced. They need to get their airspace along. Because, I mean, there's only so many performances of the Apassionata we need to hear. There's only so many performances of, you know, Chopin First Ballad that we need to hear. What about the people who are also, that were also as significant in their time, but now are completely sort of twisting in the wind, you know? So I, I, that's definitely a goal of mine is to, to get that music out there. And, you know, um, Beethoven wasn't the only person writing at that time. That's right, that's right. That's the thing is like, we, love, because- we love Beethoven and there's no reason to not love Beethoven. It, it's fine to love Beethoven. It's fine to love Brahms. It's fine to love Chopin. It really is. And I think that a lot of people feel like it's either throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can have both. Yes. Yes. Are there any composers you recommend that our audience listen to? From, from this sort of, or just in general? In general, any era, marginalized composers. I, I mean, Samuel Coleridge Taylor would be one. Um, there's even, oh, there's another name. Oh, I just have a big stack of his music. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He wrote a lot of famous pieces, uh, an American composer. Um, and a lot of his writing is fantastic, like it's very pianistic. Blind, blind guy too, but he was a s- superstar pianist. And I'm even embarrassed that I can't remember his name off the top of my head because I'm only a few of the things. And... <laughs> if you find it, let us know. We'll right, I, I definitely will. But but these are definitely composers and 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 human beings who I think definitely deserve their their due space and their due airplay. Yeah. Um, what would you, what would you tell? Maybe we'll start with conservatories. What would you tell conservatories? We'll go with them first or music schools. And what would you tell arts organizations how they could help marginalized people right now? And particularly maybe the black community, because I feel like the analogy is being used. If a house is on fire, you use the fire hydrant for that house, not the house that's safe. That's right. And right now I feel like the house for black people, especially in the United States, but also in Canada, um, because I'm reading about what the Toronto police do and I am shaking my head every paragraph. I am reading The Skin We're In by Desmond Cole um, and I'm just shaking my head because- It's been like that for a long time. It's been like that for a long time. It has. So what would you tell a conservatory and what would you tell an arts organization? How can they be an ally? Well, one, there's two things I would think. One is that they should consider employing more people of color to on staff. So you have people for the youngsters to look up to and you have sort of different voices from the outside. That would be one perspective. And again, if you're just if you're only picking cherry picking the people who are quote unquote at the top at the top of the pile, some of them fizzle out, some of them don't. I would never consider myself 
um, someone who was on top all the time. If anything, I would even call myself a bit of a late bloomer in terms of my musical career. And I think that they should also consider people based on um, their, their um, as a prospect, you know, that they don't necessarily need to be a finished product coming into the conservatory, into the university, that you can work with people who have the talent there. You can see that they have the work ethic more importantly than anything else. And just give them the opportunities to be successful as opposed to just always trying to find the next big wunderkind or something like that. So <laughs> you can say that louder for the people in the back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I I I can't agree more. Um and I think that it like when I consider who gets into Curtis or Juilliard. These are finished products already. Yes, yeah, they're already professional musicians, you know. So like, they're they're not really going to learn much, and 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 you also need to consider that even when in the hiring process, they try to structure things in such a way that only so certain people will have those opportunities, you know. Um, and it's a shame that even with all the experiences I have and 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 all of the students I've worked with, all of the countries around the world that I've performed that they still just have this such a narrow criteria that, again, so few can jump through. And then you're just taking away opportunities for all these other people who can lift up the, the community together. It's true. Um, and I think that from our side, we are trying to provide lists of repertoire to consider. That's true. Um, because some performers come to us with a very set program, like next year we're having uh, pictures of an exhibition. Okay. I'm so That's excited. Um, fantastic piece. Fantastic. It is. It is. And it's going to be played by a fantastic pianist and we're really excited. Um, and, you know, I, I don't say we need to throw out pictures of an exhibition, actually, especially since it has particular comments on mental health, um, the context in which that piece was composed. There's can, there can be a lot of comment on anti-Semitism, um, depression, uh, social status. There's a lot to talk about in that piece, but uh, some performers come to us without such a set plan and they're like, oh, what would you like me to play? And I think that um, we need to have something ready for them that's like, have you considered mm. you know, instead of Mozart? And that hurts me, I love Mozart. But um, Mozart's always going to be played. Yes. Always. And if for one Saturday night he's not, I think he's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And I, and I think that, be, and that becomes the problem. that we, That's a conditioning that comes early in our education process, right? Where we need to play Beethoven. We need to play Mozart. And if we don't, then we're some, some sort of weirdo. And I remember when I was at university, my, it was my piano teacher there that had gave me, or yeah, he really helped me understand that there is other music out there, that not everyone needs to be playing these the same pieces over and over and over. You can carve your niche doing something else. You can bring light to, I, I mean, he was big into Joaquin Turina, for example, and no one knows any, or very little about Turina in most circles, right? Some people do know who Joaquin Turina is, but... But again, like that was an example for him of like shedding light on someone who is 
out there, but you don't necessarily spend time with because everyone just wants to play the Chopin ballads and all of the fast etudes and things like that, right? And they have their time and place, but like you said, one week off of Mozart is not going to damage his career by any means, you know? It's been really interesting to see that Beethoven's 250th year has been completely disrupted by this pandemic. Right. And I'm kind of like, he's watching. (laughs) (laughs) And he's, he's kind of like, hey guys, it's just another birthday for me. You didn't need to do this big party. Um, and now your things are canceled and um, this is giving you time to think. Oh, and by the way, here's some social unrest. Um. Yeah. <laughs> but the, and I think that's maybe a blessing in disguise, having this social mm-hmm. unrest, having these discussions, bringing light to, com- to composers and marginalized musicians and composers who really need to have their day and, and their time in the spotlight too, you know? I think if, we were, if it was a Beethoven year like any other, then yeah, we would be hearing full programs of complete Beethoven's not a cycles and 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 you know and we've heard it before and it's amazing that people have the memory to play all that through but maybe now this is a sort of you know uh, a blessing in disguise to have a little bit of room for other people to have their their space too and how important would it have been for you to have had I don't know who your piano teachers were growing up were they Caucasian yes okay. everyone okay so my teachers have been Caucasian and Asian. Okay. Shout okay. out to my current teacher, who I don't think he's listening right now because he's probably practicing for his live stream on Sunday. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've, I've had Caucasian and Taiwanese teachers. Okay. Um, so it's, you know, I've seen myself in my teachers because some of them have been white. Um, like my vocal coach is Hungarian and I'm Hungarian. So not only do I see myself, but it's like, oh, we both have these tendencies. Oh yeah, that's why. And I just, you know, I'm imagining for a young child of color who doesn't see themselves reflected in the repertoire choice or even what their teacher looks like. That's hard. It, It is in a way, but I think what made it easier was that they didn't treat me as the other that they that they actually you know that they weren't like okay here are my here's my stable of real students and then there's luke over there that that i was really part of the team that they that all of my teachers really did as far as i know unless they faked it really well they were really legitimately concerned about my career and they really wanted me to, to to be successful so i think in that case i didn't i would never be able to look at them and say well you know, they don't look like me, but this. No, I, I just really admired the amount of things that they taught me and how much they believed in me and the confidence they had in me. It was more, I, I think what helps in that case is that now I'm able to turn to my students who look a little bit differently than me, or even some people who do look like me. Now I have an opportunity to work with younger students of color and I can make it cool again, you know, that I can release a little bit of the fire and brimstone because I don't look like the typical classical musician. I don't necessarily talk like them. I can talk to them about sports and we can talk about this and we can be a little bit silly, but then, but they also get the gravity of, of um, music in general and classical music as a whole. Um, and we can, and I'm paying it forward in that, res- in that respect. It doesn't always have to be a sort of black and white issue, 
Um, yeah. and, and like I said, this is maybe why I figured it out later because my teachers didn't treat me as the other. Um, but then, yeah, you do realize that over time that you have to leave your little bubble, whether it's university or whatever it is. And, and you start to realize that you're just another person like walking down the street. I can't tell everyone, Hey, I'm a classical musician. Leave me alone. I'm just that guy walking down the street. So, or, or like I said, going into the venues or I remember yeah. once I was playing in a concert um, I was about to play in a concert in Europe. I won't say where it was because I don't want to embarrass anyone. And they said, oh, coming all the way from Canada, da 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 Luke Welch. And I have this, you know, Anglo-Saxon name. And out I walk. And the whole room of the whole auditorium stopped clapping for a second because they were just in shock that they didn't expect to see me. They just thought I was going to be a, a blonde kid, you know. And, uh, and then they sort of recovered. But by the end of the performance, it was one of the most memorable performances I ever had. Like, they, they were such a sweet audience. They were so receptive. Um, but again, that shock it, it reminds you that people still see you differently than you see yourself. So. It's true. And um, that's, that's the part that's so challenging. Um, but if, if people are looking for ways to, to educate themselves in the classical music field, we want to recommend... Um, Vancouver Bach Choir's executive director, Nina Horvath, put together a playlist of choral music by Black composers. So if folks are wanting to educate themselves more, that's a place to start. Um, so it's all very, it's it's available to people that want to do the work. That's right. And this is, I, I have to emphasize, it's doing the work. This is important. It's, it does not going to sink into your head by osmosis. Y'all got to think, y'all got to read, listen, watch some videos, um, watch a documentary or five. <laughs> yes. And this is why it's going to be up to people like me now to start shedding more light onto these people because now we have hundreds of years to catching up on. Everyone knows who Beethoven is, whether they're a musician or not. Anywhere around the world, you can say Beethoven, they know he was a composer, you know, or Mozart or Chopin. So it's now up to, to us to make some of these other people who deserve it household names as well, you know? And, and even if they don't necessarily know all the pieces by heart, they at least know that they exist. It's true. And, um, you know, if you know of any resources, um, <clears throat> please let us know and we will definitely pass those on. Um, it has been a pleasure to host pianist Luke Welch. Um, if you've tuned in, you might not have heard the introductions. I'm Jennifer West, I'm the Artistic Director of Muse West Concerts. This has been a fantastic episode of Take Note. Um, we were with pianist Luke Welch from Toronto and we hope you will join us for his performance tomorrow. Thanks again, Luke. Thank you very much for having me, Jennifer. I look forward to the performance tomorrow and uh, I will see you guys all soon. Thank you, so do we. Bye.